Good evening, everybody. We, uh, we pray for us one more time. Father, I thank you so much for tonight. I thank you, God, for this opportunity you've given to us yet again to open your word together. And Father, how I pray that tonight, um, I guess it's, it's not different than any other Sunday night, but uh, the text tonight we've waited for for a long time. So, Father, would you speak to us, I pray, through your word that you've delivered once and for all to us. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So back on September 23rd, actually, we opened our series through the book of Job with the sermon, The Sun Goes Down, as we were introduced to this tragic story, for lack of a better word. We've slogged through the book of Job for almost four solid months. We've seen Job endure almost indescribable suffering from the loss of his children, his relationship with his wife, his health, his reputation, his dignity, his property, all of it. We've listened to three men who were supposed to be his friends self-righteously and mercilessly judge and accuse the man, belittle and torture him with words. We've seen a young, well-meaning but arrogant fool show up and pour salt in the wounds. But we've also heard Job cry out for God to appear, for God to give him a hearing, to listen to him, and state his case as to why all of this has happened to him. For 35 chapters, everyone has spoken but God. He's been silent. No response, no explanation, no answer, nothing. And with our um, deeper because of Jesus, but still limited view, if you will. We've tried to understand two of the great truths the book of Job is telling us. First, that there are questions for which we just don't have any answers. And secondly, those questions are crying out for the gospel. We've tried to make sense of what we've seen and what we've read with no explanation from the one person who can explain not just anything, but everything, until tonight. Until finally, chapter 38, finally, wisdom speaks. Finally, the light dawns. Finally, the sun rises. Everything has been leading to this moment. Everything. Imagine it, if you can. God is going to come down and address the cries of one human being. So, picture if you can, Elihu's final words, if you remember about the fact that God does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. That's the last thing he said. Imagine, if you can, those words fading into the wind and the silence that follows all of a sudden being broken by the sound of a storm. The rocks and the potsherds begin to fly in different directions. The dust and ashes are kicked up into everyone's eyes, their cloaks and robes whipping furiously around them as they cover their eyes. The Bitter, self-righteous friends hiding their faces. Job's face covered in sores. His lips cracked and dry. Painfully lifts his arms. And they all turn in stunned silence. As the living God himself. The creator and sustainer of every molecule and atom in the known and unknown universe. The one who gives life and breath to every living thing. Finally and actually appears. I'm going to begin at verse 1 of chapter 38 and read to the end of chapter 39 to begin here. Then 
the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture as he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? I'm sorry, I skipped. My pages were stuck together. Emergency averted. I turn back. Everybody relax. All right? Verse 9 of chapter 38. When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, This far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory? And that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then. And the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft the channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain of Father... Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? These are constellations. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? God says, because I do. That's what he's saying. Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? 
He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? He'll spend the night at the Lord's. That day will come. Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on Him because His strength is great? And will you leave to Him your labor? Do you have faith in Him that He will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? It's a very confusing phrase. We don't know what that means. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. It is by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south. It is at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high. On the rock he dwells and makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold, from there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. Forty straight questions out of the whirlwind, out of the storm. Forty straight. Look at verse 1 of chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job has talked at length about how he would present his case before God if he just got the chance. Right? He's also acknowledged that he lacks the wisdom and the stature to do so. He's told everyone who would listen that since God is just, there has to be a way for him to present his case. And God would have to rule in his favor. He's in the right. He said he knows then that he's in need of a mediator or an advocate of some kind to speak with God for him on his behalf. And in spite of the insanity of a created thing trying to stand before its creator and request vindication, which, remember, everyone around Job thinks it's blasphemous. Job has insisted, no, 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 that has to be possible. And now, here God is. And Job has no idea how to proceed. I am of small account. What am I supposed to say? Now, notice here, he doesn't take anything back, but he doesn't say another word. Stick with me just for a few more moments here. Let me read verse 6 of 40 to the end of 41. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. 
Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? With a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like. A creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Seventeen more questions, depending on how you're counting out of the whirlwind. Fifty-seven in total. And that, beloved, is Job's answer. God formed his response to Job with two main questions, if you remember them, 38-2 and 42. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, and shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Now, 
maybe you get you, you get a sense of it as we read because it's so long, but God's two speeches here are withering to anyone who's listening. Imagine the whirlwind getting stronger with every question as God's argument just builds and blow after blow, question after question. A lot is going on here. A lot is going on here. First, Job has gotten what he asked for. Uh, he wanted to argue his case before the Lord, and Job will get to speak. Secondly, he wanted God to tell everyone around him that he's not being punished for anything that he's done wrong, which will come in chapter 42. David Jackson said, To know God, we need to get ourselves into proportion. To know God, we need to get ourselves into proportion. This is amazing. How I know that he's God, so I know in one sense the question answers itself. But how does God even remember that you and I are here? How is it even on the radar? The very fact that he would come down to respond to one man's cries is overwhelming in and of itself. And the first thing that God makes clear when he speaks to Job and his friends is that he is not a part of this creation. That's the first thing God makes clear. God does not have a place. Now, think about this. We think of God in heaven, and He is, but do we really comprehend what it means for God, who is not a man but spirit, to have a place then where He is? God is not bound by the laws of physics. He isn't subject to anyone's concept of justice or wisdom or fair play. Those things are defined by God's character. It's not the other way around. And what we do know of Him are but the outskirts of His ways. And we speak of Him sometimes with, with such confidence or presumption that often is out of place. We just make statements about Him that we think are true that may or may not be true. Paul cites Job 41.11 in Romans 11.35 when Paul gets to the end of his discourse on salvation and he just bursts out in praise, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to become his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That, that Paul brings in Job as a part of that quote of praise to God, which means the revelation of Jesus does not make God understandable. It deepens the incomprehensibility of who He is. When we read in Genesis 1.1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's the beginning of space-time as you and I know it. To ask what there was then before the foundation of the world is almost nonsensical because you can't have before if time didn't exist. When God created heaven and earth, He didn't just create mass. He didn't just create the stuff that fills the cosmos. He also created the place which that mass fills. And with things like that in mind, it should just blow us away that Job 38 and following are happening at all. To know God we must get ourselves into proportion. Look at what he says to poor Job. Dress for action like a man. That's what you are. Gird up your loins and let's go to work, is what God is saying. Now I'm the one asking the questions, is what God is saying. Job wanted to argue his case. We can all 
certainly understand that. No question. But we need to keep the rest of Job in mind also. Think about this for a second. To our knowledge, Job has never asked to be healed. Job never asked to have his health restored. That was never what he prayed for. There's never been a request from him like that. There's a very real sense by the end of the book that Job isn't concerned that much about why all of this has happened to him anymore. He just wants God to confirm that he hasn't sinned. He isn't being judged for wrongdoing. He hasn't done anything to bring all of this upon himself. He wants his faith in God's word and his integrity to be publicly vindicated. But given what has happened to him, that's going to take some type of clear revelation from heaven. It's going to take an audible word from God if such a thing were even possible. And here it is. It's obvious that what God is doing here is just smashing any sense of pride, any sense of self-confidence. But we need to ask then, as we read that, is God angry at Job? Has Job sinned? No. In fact, that will be flatly confirmed and declared in Job 42.7. And God will actually repeat there for emphasis that it's the friend's who have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. God said Job was a blameless man to begin with, but now by his appearance he vindicates Job, publicly declares that what Job had been saying about him was right. The very thing the friends, and maybe the audience, thought to be so scandalous and blasphemous, God has confirmed. So there's something going on here. Note that at no point does God say that he is angry with Job in these two speeches. Now, it sounds like it, doesn't it? That's what it sounds like. But that's not what's going on. Because God will say that precisely to Eliphaz and the friends in 42.7, that he is angry with them. God's words here are very intimidating. Job has spoken boldly to God and about God. And what God says to him immediately is that he's darkened counsel by words without Knowledge. That is to say, you've confused the issues. You don't fully understand what's happening here. And some of Job's statements do come dangerously close to charging God with wrong. 9.21, 10, 4 through 7. But the friends understood Job's insistence that he was innocent as an accusation of God's injustice. But if that's what God thought Job was doing... It's very difficult to make sense after all this of the fact that God says Job has spoken of him what was right. So, did God show up to punish Job? No, Job hasn't sinned. Did God show up to make Job look foolish? Is he here to strike Job down? No. He didn't appear to Job when Job was alone. It's no mistake that the friends are also present. When God asked in 38.2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, you can bet when they heard that, they think it's Job. Job is the one being called to stand and answer like a man, isn't he? So it seems like the friends are going to get what they want. Job is in trouble. But, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You remember how this book started? It's all a setup, wasn't it? It was all a setup. God set up Satan to see his majesty by making him think he might have a point about why people really worship him. Well, here at the other end of the book, 
It's the exact same thing. That's the pattern. It's a setup. God initiated all of this to prove to the devil that he is worthy of worship, whether he sends good or disaster. So God set the trap and the devil fell for it, ironically, hook, line, and sinker. And that's precisely what the friends are doing here. I remember once during a Wednesday night service at Darbyville Church of the Nazarene in Pickaway County, Ohio, where my dad was pastoring. I was in the sixth grade, and my mom was giving a talk on Halloween. It was a Wednesday night service. But all the kids were sitting together. Uh, We were being unruly and cutting up and being very disrespectful and noisy. So my dad stood up. He was in the pew in front of me, politely asked my mom to hold on for a minute, and he turned around and just let the kids have it. Like he just, he just let us have it, but he wasn't looking at me. Wasn't looking at me. And I was so, listen, I was by far the ringleader. No question. But he wasn't looking at me. He was yelling at the kids. I was thrilled. Like, oh my goodness, he, he doesn't know it was me. He doesn't have eyes in the back of his head like I've thought for all these years. He doesn't know. And he's right without breaking his sentence at all. He was a master at this. Without breaking stride or anything at all, he's, he's railing on the kids and he says, and that goes for you too. And he looked right at me. And I was like Isaiah. I was, I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. I know that when I get home, it's over. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. That's very much like what is about to happen here. Like what's coming here in just a few moments. We'll see it. I think, I think my dad was so angry that I was being so disrespectful to my mom that, that he, he had to speak. And I think God has appeared ultimately to cut off everyone else from speaking, but in particular, those who had spoken incorrectly about him. God is here for Job. We're going to see that. He's not against it. Remember God's initiating causal role in all of this and what all of it was based on in the first place. God has not now appeared to prove the friends right, but to prove Job right. And his strategy is to draw them in closely enough to feel the full weight of his words. This is what all of this has done to Satan. It's put Satan right in the stocks. And that's what all of this has done to the friends. It's brought them close enough for the swipe of God's hand. Everybody here needed to hear what God was saying. No question. But for Job, this was to draw him close so that he would ultimately trust that this God was his God. So think about what he does. He takes Job on a tour of the cosmos. From the beginning of creation to the constellations, from the weather to the behavior of animals, and asks Job what his role is in all of that. Then in the latter part of chapter 40 and 41, God focuses on two of the most terrifying creatures known to man, perhaps, Behemoth and Leviathan. Possibly... This is poetic imagery for a hippopotamus and a crocodile. You could see that. That certainly makes sense. Or God is referring to creatures from local mythology at that time, using their myths to make a point they could understand. And if that's the case, God is not saying that those things are real. It would be like if I quote a movie or a book or something in a character that isn't real to make a point. It would be something like that if that's what he's doing. But I think... Something even more interesting, possibly, 
is the idea that behemoth and Leviathan might be literary devices representing Satan and death. There's some very interesting things there. I'm not willing to be dogmatic about it. It's just interesting. Job can't control those things. That's the point of the two examples. These are two things that nobody can control, but God can. We are powerless in the face of evil and chaos. That's what God is telling him. You're powerless in the face of evil and chaos, but I'm not. That's what God is saying. I'm not. Again, how did the book begin? I mentioned before that God was setting the trap, so to speak, in the beginning. When God entices Satan to do his bidding, he's just playing with him. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Like he doesn't know. And by the end of the book, what's happened? God has his hook in Satan's mouth. He caught him. He caught him. Which is exactly what God is doing to the three friends whose arguments are laced with the devil's theology. We've seen it. It's directed as questions to Job, but these are ultimately accusations against the devil and Job's friends. I think, especially coming out of Eliphaz's, the oldest, the most wise, his first speech, one of the first things out of his mouth, remember that vision that he had that set the tone for everything that he did. I think the friends have been under the direction and influence of Satan the entire time. That's why you get, I think, listen to chapter 40 one more time, verses 12 through 14. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Now think about that for a minute. It was never Job that claimed his right hand could save him. That's been his point the entire book. And the friends have been saying to Job the whole time, your own right hand can save you. Just do these things. Right? That, that's the whole basis of the argument. It was the friends who urged him to think that he could save himself by admitting his guilt and changing his lifestyle. They were the ones who preached the gospel of reciprocal justice where repentance and right living would then bring prosperity. They were the ones with no notion whatsoever of faith or grace. And in chapter 40, what you see, what you and I see, is that God has appeared to say, listen, if you want that kind of gospel, you'll have to be able to look after the whole creation. And you'll have to have the power to fix all the world's problems, not just your own. And at the same time, you'll have to be able to bring all the bad guys to justice too. And if you can do all that, then God says, then you can save yourself. Because you know what? Only gods can save. We're all sinners. We are. And and we're all clouded to different degrees. So I don't want to revel in just a moment when God turns all of a sudden to these friends and says, and that goes for you too. But it's a little hard not to. Who has darkened counsel in the book of Job? Who was it that darkened counsel? Who has clouded God from Job by muddying the water? Who are the fault finders in the book of Job? Who are the fault finders in the book of Job? that in raising themselves up against the one God is called righteous, have dared to contend with the Almighty. So imagine the whirlwind leaning right into the faces of these friends without them realizing it just yet, saying, you want that to be the gospel, then show me. Make your gospel work. And do it right here. Do it right now before me in the presence of my glory. Stand up. Gird up your loins. Dress for action like mere mortals. Save yourselves. And yet... 
yet. This is amazing. Job is the one who melts. Job is the one who melts. It wasn't the man's blamelessness that earned him God's favor. His faith pleased God, and it is credited to him as righteousness by the words of God's own mouth. Look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's doctrine. And it better be true, or we have no hope. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting the Lord. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. He's quoting God again. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's not as though the word of God fell on deaf ears with Job. And it's not as though these words are irrelevant to Job. But how in the world is Job the one repenting and the friends are silent? This is amazing. It, it, it looked for a while as though Job was going to get severely punished for the pride and self-righteousness his friends had accused him of. That's the way it builds. But then, as the whole scene reaches its climax, and Job cries out in resignation, maybe at this moment expecting to be killed, still not understanding what had happened to him, the whirlwind stops, beloved, right here. It stops right at his feet and makes a sudden turn, and it sweeps down on Job's three friends. Job's crying out is not even acknowledged. Instead, Finally, he lifts his head and watches as we're about to, as the vindication he's craved and the past warnings that, is, that he's made to his friends all come home. Look at 7 through 9. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. The man has waited and waited and waited, and God showed up in person to say it. Now, therefore, this is amazing. Take seven bowls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. God said that twice. So Eliphaz the Tamanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After all that he's been through, 
After all we've seen Job endure, can you imagine this moment of vindication when the dawn finally breaks on this man's blistered and battered head and foreshadowing Christ? After all this time, Job mediates for his three accusing friends. So, what are we to make of Job's repentance then? What is happening there? If you just bear with me for just a moment of grammar, it's important. Sorry, young people, I know you get plenty of grammar, but the problem in correctly understanding, correctly understanding verses 1 through 6, is our normal understanding of the word repent. When we see the word repent, we automatically means, to us it means, well, you're confessing sin. You're asking for forgiveness. When we see the word repent, then, we read the modern Christian usage of the word back into it, right? Which is, that's not an a accusation. That's just, why wouldn't we, right? That's, that's what we do. We think of it as a theological term. It's used in Scripture. It includes the concepts expressed by um, three Greek terms from New Testament vocabulary. You have uh, a change of emotion or a sense of grief. That's metamelomai in Greek. You have a change of attitude or mind. That's a metanoeo. And then the third is a, the way to repent is used in, in the New Testament is a change of lifestyle, epistropho. <coughs> the Hebrew word for repent, used in Job 42.6, refers exclusively, exclusively, to an emotion of sorrow, grief, or despair. We have to see this to get the, the book. Job is not confessing here that he had sinned. That's not what's happening. But not because he's rebellious and he refused to. He hadn't sinned. So he's not saying, God, you're wrong. I repent. I sin. No, no, no. If Job repents for sin here in the way we automatically read the word, it would contradict everything he claimed up to this point, as well as contradict what God has affirmed already about Job. So the whole Hebrew phrase here has to be read together to understand it. Repent in dust and ashes. That's one phrase. It all goes together. In all the instances where that verb is used with this preposition, it points to the cause or the occasion of the person's distress. When repentance like we understand is in view, the object changes. The person repents on account of his wickedness. And there are other times in the Old Testament in Hebrew where you see that phrase. Right? But you see what it points to. On account of my wickedness, I repent. Four times, actually, God relents concerning a disaster he was about to bring. So it all the meaning, how you take it, depends on what it's referring to. Here, the preposition points to dust and ashes. And that phrase is normally seen when someone is being comforted concerning a tragedy. You, if you have the f- footnote, you may see the footnote in your Bible by repent. You might see a number and then go look at it and it might say something like, or was comforted or am comforted. Right. For example, David was consoled or comforted in 2 Samuel 13, 39 concerning Amnon's death. Right. Same type of phrase here. Or Ezekiel was to be consoled regarding the disaster God was about to bring on Jerusalem. Ezekiel 14, 22 and 32, 32. This is the way the phrase is used in just a few verses in Job 42, 11, in fact. Comforted and consoled him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. In fact, this is very interesting. 
the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, has Job at the end here literally dissolving in dust and ashes, is what it says, with no concept of him repenting at all. So, we would understand the scene better if it was translated more closely with something like, therefore I melt and I am comforted on account of the dust and ashes. That's where he's sitting. Do you remember that? That's where he is. He's in literal dust and ashes. That's the place from which Job had cried out. That's the place where Job couldn't see God from. That's become his phrase for his accumulated sufferings, dust and ashes. And so the sense here is that the appearance of the Lord and the things the Lord has said have met Job's cry for God to hear and vindicate him. That's Job is, is professing to us, to God, that, okay, I'm comforted here. I see it. I get it. It's Job saying, I've gotten what I asked for. He rejects his previous claims against God. And he rests in what God has revealed about himself. Now we can ask, or then we should ask, okay, how did God's questions here, how did they answer Job? Beloved, God revealed himself. And Job found out that was all he needed. It's an amazingly powerful moment. This is Job, after all that Job has been through, saying that he no longer believes he needs straight, specific answers to have peace about what has happened to him. We'll explore this at the end next week, but just please note here that restoration for Job is coming, and it's beautiful, but it's not the restoration Job receives at the end that changed his perspective, is it? This is before that, when he didn't know it was going to happen. It was the revelation of God before even before Job even knew God was going to openly vindicate him. Do you understand that? God said this to his friends, that you were wrong and Job was right, after Job repents or is comforted in his dust and ashes. That's important. This is what settled his mind and brought him peace. The revelation of God. God is not ignoring Job's questions. We, we have to understand this. He's not ignoring him. God is just showing that a specific answer to each one is not what is necessary to bring comfort to his servant. Everyone in this room tonight, every single one of us, needs to hear this moment. We're going to need it. You might need it right now. God will very rarely, if ever, directly answer our questions. Elizabeth Elliot, tremendous woman of God, died a few years ago, lost her husband, Jim Elliot, when the Alka Indians in Ecuador killed him and four other missionaries in 1956. Their daughter was 10 months old when that happened. It's an amazing story. Um, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley. There was another guy. They had shotguns. They wouldn't use them, and they were speared to death. 
come to find out they had all already agreed that they wouldn't use their guns if they were attacked because if they did, missionaries would never be welcome there again. She wrote, she was a fantastic writer, and she wrote in her book, On Asking God Why. That was the name of the book, On Asking God Why. The psalmist often questioned God, and so did Job. God did not answer the questions, but he answered the man with the mystery of himself. He has not left us entirely in the dark. We know a great deal more about his purposes than poor old Job did, yet Job trusted him. He is not only the Almighty, Job's favorite name for him, he is also our Father. And what a father does is not by any means always understood by the child. And I think that's the way we move toward the answer in Job. I'm not God. My goodness. But I really love my kids. right? So much so that it hurts. And unlike God who is never wrong, I will most likely often be wrong in the decisions I make for my kids, the responses I have, the rules that I make, etc., etc. I sometimes just groan to my wife that every chance I have to, to say the right thing, I don't say it. I say something stupid, right? Or just out of my temper. As a fallen man then, what is my hope that my kids will not think poorly of me as a father? What's the only hope that I have that they won't think poorly of me, that no matter what I do, they know that I love them. I don't understand why my dad did that or had that rule, but I do know my dad loves me. Now, there's a pointer there. It's not a perfect illustration, but there's a pointer there to what God is doing here to his servant, Job. The way to peace is not getting all the answers. Peace comes when we let trying to understand it go and just rest in the fact that he loves us. That's how I know who I am tonight, tomorrow, the next time I blow it, the next time I fail. That's where I can rest. God showed up in person and answered Job. We might say, well, he's never done that for me. Yes, he has. And that's what he's done for all of us in Christ. That's what part of what the appearance of Christ is doing for everyone. That's how the gospel answers our questions. Right? That no matter what, we know that God loves us. That's what the gospel did. We never need to question it. And we will be tempted to all the time. The fact that there are no direct answers to Job's questions is an answer. It's an open-ended one, so it invites us in some ways to make sense of it for ourselves. God didn't give direct answers. God didn't judge him necessarily. God showed up and spoke a word that reconnected Job with reality. Job forgot. And of course he did. We're not uh, criticizing him. Of course you would. And and listen, Job's an extreme example. We don't need to suffer that much to think, you forgot about me. God said, in essence, look at me. It feels like God is being so mean. No, no, no. God is saying, Job, 
Look at me. Do you realize who I am? What I have done? What I control? Where the power is? What I'm capable of? Do you understand? God is the creator of everything. He holds everything in its appointed order. So He's not bound by what we think order is. We feel like it's chaos. It's never chaos to God. God is the Lord of what to us is chaos, death, evil, suffering. God reveals what He is like and in so doing reveals to Job that goodness and justice and order and righteousness, He reveals what those things truly are. So no matter what it seems like in the world and what's going on in our lives, nothing is ever out of place. There is not a rogue Adam in the cosmos is what God is saying to Job. It doesn't seem like it, but you dig into it and he's saying, you think I lost control here? You think I just like, like this just happened? And I was like, oh, my servant Job, I forgot you were there. And then I got grouchy because you guys were complaining. He's not like, he's not us. That's the whole point. He's, he's saying, I am so different from you. We, we, we heap onto God these ideas of what we think of as father and justice and love and goodness and we just heap them onto him and then when he acts the only we think well he's yeah that, that's why we think God doesn't forgive because we think God is like us and he's got a limit we won't understand how all of it fits together we won't understand how all of it works look that, that's not like a religious cop out it's true is anybody ready to deny that we won't ever understand everything or figure it all out It's not a cop-out. It's the way it is. And we certainly don't ever fully understand the place of suffering in God's orderly universe. How does suffering fit into order? I, I don't know. I don't know. But we see Him. In fact, you and I, beloved, see Him even more clearly than Job did in God's Word. We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I think we all need to see ourselves in Job 42, 1 through 6, because to know God, we have to get ourselves in proportion. The book of Job calls us to lay our hands over our mouths, over all our presumptions, our all our opinions, all our doubt that God knows what He's doing, it can feel so disorderly. Like what, how in the world does this piece fit, God? That, that can be very common. Anger is believing God got it wrong. Worry is doubting He'll get it right. And most of us are Going back and forth between those two things, anger, worry, anger, worry, anxiety, anger, doubt. But here's what the book of Job proclaims to us here at the end. It turns out that God does indeed know that we are dust. And he won't wipe us out because we don't understand. This book points us to salvation by grace through faith alone. Right? It, I mean, by the time you come to the end of chapter 41, what is the hope of a human being? before this God. 
throws us onto the gospel as God's answer for what hurts us, our anger, our worry, our anxiety, our doubt, our lack of an identity, our ongoing struggle with sin, our chaos. Beloved, Job's ashes are a nice picture of the fact that his world had fallen apart. Job is a book for people sitting in the ashes. That's who it's for. There's so much Job didn't know, so much he couldn't understand. And yet when God appears, he doesn't charge Job with sin. If he charged him with anything, it would be ignorance. When we look at the end next week, and it's, it's almost like God comes down and wraps his arms around Job finally to say, Listen, I will always take care of you. I will never leave your side. And that sounds familiar from another cloud. When Jesus promised to us before that other kind of cloud took him back up to heaven, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. When God finally appeared, he appeared in the whirlwind. That is, he appeared in tangible proof that he maintains control in chaos. That he is the calm in the storm. That he is the dawn that shatters the night. Imagine that image of God appearing out of the whirlwind. A tornado, maybe. In the chaos of questions, in the chaos of suffering, in the chaos of sin and death, God maintains control over me and he maintains control over you. God never leaves the deck out here on this sea, ever. He walks on the waves, the eternal savior of all those who believe in him. I want to close with the lyrics of this song. A guy named Mosey Lister, maybe you remember him. In the dark of the midnight have I oft hid my face While the storm howls above me And there's no hiding place Mid the crash of the thunder, precious Lord, hear my cry Keep me safe Till the storm passes by Till the storm passes over Till the thunder sounds no more Till the clouds roll forever from the sky Hold me fast Let me stand In the hollow of thy hand Keep me safe till the storm passes by. Many times Satan whispered, There is no need to try, for there's no end of sorrow, there's no hope by and by. But I know thou art with me, and tomorrow I'll rise where the storms never darken the skies. Till the storm passes over and the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. When the long night has ended and the storms come no more, let me stand in thy presence on the bright, peaceful shore in that land where the tempest never comes. Lord, may I dwell with thee when the storm passes by. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll, roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, 
Let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. I remember ladies, a ladies trio singing that song when I was a kid several times in church. And I would hide under my table in our basement when there was a thunderstorm and sing that song as a little boy. I just remembered that. And maybe that's a picture of of how it is. The front is open. If you need to come and pray, I'll be here. Let me close us in prayer here before we sing. Father, I thank you for this night. God, I thank you for this text. Thank you for this book. And Lord, I pray that um, we make enough sense of things to know that you will not leave us or forsake us when we are enveloped in chaos. Because, Father, you... You're the Lord of chaos. You're, you're in the chaos. And it doesn't touch you. And so, Father, I pray that we would remember who you are tonight, mainly through who you've revealed yourself to be through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, of sinners and those overcome by fear. Lord, be with us, I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.